at Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy Fourth uh, of July week, I guess. Uh, it was Tuesday, but there's no other more appropriate thing I, unless we're calling this uh, on-topic Tulane discussion week. That's true. For once, we are going to talk about Tulane and have it planned. Um, we're very excited about American Athletic Conference uh, a preview episode that uh, that will be happening later this episode. But for now, we're going to be talking Syracuse stuff just because it seems like you guys would prefer we kept off-topic stuff to a different part of the podcast. Um, and obviously, it's easier to just stop listening versus fast forward. Um, anyway, uh, starting off with today's headline and for those listening yesterday's, uh, former Syracuse guard Dion Waiters signs with the Heat again for four years, $52 million. Uh, Dan, we live in a world where Dion Waiters makes $13 million a year to play professional basketball in the United States. How do you feel about it? Um, I'm happy because it gives us a like, legitimate um, second Syracuse. Uh, I mean, if you're, I, I think it's not totally unfair to call Dion Waiters like a a borderline NBA star at this point. He, he had some huge moments last year. He got, like, not a crazy deal, but a really nice, lucrative contract for a guy who most were probably calling a, an early first-round bust uh, not that long ago. Um, and uh, he is in a place where we... I mean, I said last week, like, I thought this made the most sense for him, staying in Miami, a place where he thrived last year and finally found his footing um, after, you know, some up-and-down seasons in Cleveland and Oklahoma City. Um, and especially compared to like the other options, the, the Kings have done some interesting things this off season, but they're still the Kings. The Knicks, who knows what they're going to be post Phil Jackson. The Lakers are still in a total rebuild. So I, I just thought Miami was was the most stable spot. He's proven he can do well there. Um, they're probably going to push for the playoffs this year, and, and they seem to like him there. So I, I'm pretty happy with this, and I thought he got a pretty solid fair market contract um and you know four years 13 million a year pretty good for dion he can go uh, i think uh matt claude said on twitter he could actually go like buy a small uh waiter's island now <laughs> wouldn't be the worst idea for him at this point be very on brand um i i do think yeah you're right that like waiters waiters staying in miami you look around that team it's him Whiteside, Dragic. they got some other great pieces um that that really have them kind of... I mean, they're definitely in a youth movement, but I would say not so much so where he feels like he's in a total rebuild. I mean, Miami looked really bad at the beginning of last year, and then obviously Waiters kind of put them on his back and really you know, became the glue that held their, uh, their really nice you know, midseason run together. And once he was out, um, they unfortunately missed the playoffs by game. So, you know, I, I said it in the, the article about uh, the re-signing. Like, you look at what's happened elsewhere around the East, like, Atlanta doesn't look like they're necessarily a playoff team. Um, I mean, obviously Milwaukee looks like they're a rising team. Toronto kept basically everybody, but like Indiana's not making the playoffs, at least as the roster is currently constructed. Like there's a clear opening, and the Bulls too are obviously going to drop a little bit. Like 
th there was a very clear opening now for um, Miami to be able to, to quickly go from, you know, just outside the playoffs to maybe a five seed even. And, and that's got to be, you know, encouraging for him and really any other lingering free agents out there um, who are looking, who are picking between signing for, you know, Eastern Conference teams or Western Conference teams. I mean, the road to get to the playoffs in the Western Conference is, is going to be, you know, fraught with, with a lot of great players and, and some real bruising matchups and tough teams. And then obviously that's even before you get to the playoffs and, and likely at some point face the gauntlet that is the Golden State Warriors. So I think as much as some players might have been, you know, kind of shying away from facing LeBron and just avoiding that whole circus, I, I think the, the remaining players are probably going to uh, wise up a little bit and realize that, like, if, if you're if you want to have a shot at winning a title, if you want to have a shot at making the finals, you have a much better chance of doing so in the East right now than you do in the West. Yeah, and the, I mean, it's a clear path. I, I don't know how much that affects Dion since we, we all pretty much think he thinks he's the best player in the NBA. Um, but uh, I, I do think that there's definitely a better path. I mean, this was easily the, the best situation in terms of winning now. Um, I think culturally, so much has been said about how, how good the Heat are in that regard with, with Pat Riley up top and Eric Spolstra kind of turning into one of the better coaches in the league. Um, and they just seem to, to know what they want to do and, and move forward. And um, I don't think they're an NBA title contender by any means, but uh, they should at least, you know, be a pretty, if they play like they did in the second half of last season, they'll be a, a pretty competitive Eastern Conference team. And, and Dion's a big part of that. So uh, happy for him. Hope it works out. Hope, uh, Hope he is looking at another big one, a uh, big contract in four years. And he's, he's still young, too, which is what people forget. Like He was a, a pretty young college player, um, unlike some of those guys who come in as freshmen at, like, 20. I think he was 18 when he started at Syracuse. So he's only uh, – how old is he now? 24, like, 25. Yeah, so he's he's still very young. He, he's going to be up again for a new contract at, like, what, 20, 29, 30, right in the, in the middle of his prime. So if this goes well, I mean, Deion could really cash in. Yeah, it would actually make him the longest tenured, you know, Syracuse player other than Melo, you know, in, in quite some time. I think Hakeem Warwick played for eight years, and he's really like the standard bearer um, in, in the non-Melo vision for uh, the last, like, 20 years. So, yeah, it's definitely nice to see him, uh, you know, eventually climb that, that leaderboard. And we'll see what he is, obviously, in four years, but it, it doesn't necessarily look like a guy like Waiters, you know, with, with a, a high motor and not somebody who really, like, pursues a lot of contact he definitely appears to be someone who could have durability in the league if his jump shot stays as good as it's seemingly i mean it's still not like great efficiency wise but um i know you mentioned that like catch and shoot um you know efficient field goal number which i was astounded by but also very encouraging for him if he could keep it up yeah i mean last year he had uh, his second best shooting year from the floor at 42.4%, uh, just below his second year in the league, which was like his high, basically his high watermark in terms of points and, and kind of raw numbers. Um, and then he uh, was also at 39.5% from three, which was by far his highest in the league. Um, so, I mean, if he's going to shoot like in the 37 to 38% range from three, um, he could definitely stand to have his like overall field goal percentage go up a little bit, but he's also... Uh, as uh, that stat that you put in the in the uh, in the post on on his contract, like his assist numbers are, are looking better. He can almost he's kind of proven that he can be. You don't probably don't want him as your primary ball handler, but he can fill the one role probably in spots, um, which makes him more versatile, especially at six four versus like a six 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 seven shooting guard. Um, and the other thing that grabs me uh, today, we also saw Nick Young 
signed with Golden State, and Nick Young is entering his 12th NBA season. Sorry. And if Nick Young can play 12 years <laughs> in the NBA, Deion Waiters can play for a, a while longer. <laughs> That's like that blew my mind today. How, so I, how, I, how is Nick Young? How has he been in the league for 12 years? And he played three years at USC. Has like, anyone, Nick Young has been, has been in our consciousness for, for so long. Has anyone been in the league for more time and like done absolutely nothing? Uh, I would not say Nick Young has done nothing. Well, Nick Young has brought so many gifts. Uh, <laughs> a pretty, pretty long-standing meme. Um, I was just, there. I was there for that game. Were you really? The That's one. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> he's he, he's done some incredible things, admittedly, but I would say, like, as far as actual, like, real-world accomplishments, not a lot of value added. No. Um, in terms of basketball, but <laughs> he can score and. He's hilarious, and not like for reasons that he probably wants. And now we have Nick Young is going to probably win a title next year, and JaVale McGee is probably going to win a second title next year. Um, I hope the Warriors continue just to compile like the Island of Misfit Toys as uh, their bench and just keep on getting ridiculous people uh, rings. That sounds about right. Like there's, there's, an, I mean, that's not the, the craziest thing. Wouldn't be for Dion to sign with the Warriors in four years because he and KD are like apparently best friends still a very weird combo because i feel like they're polar opposite personalities it doesn't make any sense but it apparently isn't really a thing based on uh based on like what we saw at oklahoma city and then also the Dion waiters uh players tribune article which should be like reread by everyone today <laughs> framed put in a museum in the dome they should really put it in the, in the mellow center like put it in the in the display of all the syracuse basketball accomplishments fine. like one of our players wrote this and it's amazing <laughs> So I guess while we're on basketball, I figure why don't we move linearly, go from basketball to football to non-Syracuse football. Um, want to talk a little bit about the uh, the really great news we got on the recruiting front uh, this week. You know, we had uh, former Ohio State commit Darius Baisley. Um, he was again with the Buckeyes, but then uh, that Mata got let go. Um, he kind of saw Ohio State headed south. Uh, Obviously took a liking to Syracuse, among other schools, but, you know, after showing up on campus this past weekend, uh, he was completely sold. I think that, you know, a lot of folks were uh, were kind of running for the exits and, and getting a little panicked about, you know, our future scholarship situation. And, yes, there's probably some things that we need to work on in terms of filling out the full uh, allotment of scholarships. But um, getting a, a four-star you know, name like Baisley, and then, you know, Ben Siegel uh, touched on this in an article uh, on Tuesday. Getting a name like that is really what kind of grabs the rest of um, a very good class. I know in the past uh, few years, we've had, you know, some big names, but we've probably had, we've probably added those bigger names later than you'd want to um, in a recruiting cycle. I feel like, you know, whether it's a guy like Torian Thompson, I know Ty's battle was kind of a back and forth, um, but adding someone like Baisley now, you know, gives you a, a clear kind of, you know, this is the guy you're going to be playing with uh, chip that, you know, I, I think Syracuse hasn't had in a few years and, and, and that should prove advantageous, you know, as, as Jim Beheim kind of figures out his first post Mike Hopkins class. Yeah. And it's also nice. Um, a, that comes on the back of a uh, Cole Swider uh, choosing Villanova. Um, which was a blow because Syracuse looked like in pretty decent position for him. Although once Duke kind of swooped in, I assume they I wouldn't get him, especially because he called them his dream school. 
Um, it turns out to be Nova, which I think is I mean, it's better for SU than rather than having play, uh, having to play him once or twice a year. Um, but getting Baisley like a couple days after that uh, disappointment is nice because they're similarly rated players. I think Baisley is basically exactly what you imagine a Syracuse forward to be. He's very rangy. Um, he is uh, very athletic. Can probably provide a little bit at the rim in terms of uh, defense and shot blocking. He's uh, you know a nice. He'll probably be a nice uh, transition player. Um, just like very uh, the classic six foot nine, super long, can play either side of the zone. Uh, forward that Jim Beheim uh, has recruited so well over the years. So I think that's a very comforting thing to have in the class, uh, and it's a good starting point. Obviously, uh, Syracuse ha- has had a lot of forwards in recent um, in recent classes uh, through transfers and and uh, picking up Dolezage uh, at the end of last year or the last cycle. It was obviously like a month ago, but it's an important position for SU. Um, so hopefully, the focus shifts over to. Uh, the guard spot from here, where I think yes, Syracuse has a little more work to do, but this is like a really solid player right now, floating, depending on what, what rankings you're looking at, he's somewhere between like the back of the top 30 to like the top 45 area, which is uh, also a place where Syracuse you know, generally picks up some most, you know, I'd say the most of its uh, top players in that range. Um, just really, really solid work to get in on him, because I don't, it doesn't seem like we were recruiting him for that long, obviously he had been an Ohio State pledge for a long time, um, and it seems like we just made moves, got him on campus, and just sealed the deal really quickly, which, uh, in the post-Mike Hopkins era here, uh, is definitely encouraging, especially because Alan Griffin, it seemed like, was the point man on that too, which uh, is nice to see. Um, good dead him a recruiting win. Oh yeah, and I think Griffin's been, like, you know, I think everyone was focused in on Autry at first, just because obviously, like, when Hopkins left, Autry was going to be moving up um, a chair, but I think Griffin's really come in and, and done a lot of the legwork here um, on, on some early recruiting wins and some early just gains around the country. I think uh, maybe he didn't get enough credit for what he was doing over at Dayton because, you know, now that he has more resources to back him, now that he has the Mellow Center, I mean, we've found a lot in the past that when Syracuse can quickly kind of, you know, move in on a guy and, and then get him onto campus within a couple weeks before you know, a lot of the other bigger names are in. I feel like we get more success versus, you know, when we're either going in at the same time as your Dukes and maybe Kentuckys and a couple others um, or, or going in after them and, you know, having them sitting on an offer from us in a visit and, and then an offer from Duke in a visit. Like, I feel like those are the ones that we, we continually lose versus, again, ones like this where we're able to jump in quickly um, and, and just do a quick measuring stick in terms of, you know, where the program's going and what, uh, you know, the, the facilities we have, which are, which are still world-class despite several other programs, you know, doing some work to kind of catch up a little bit. Yeah, I'm definitely more comfortable playing as a, a front-runner in recruiting uh, as Syracuse. Um, getting guys on campus early before you have, like, Duke and Kentucky looking to fill their classes late. Um, and also, just because in college basketball, recruiting is a lot less... Um, there's a lot less flipping. Like I, I think one of the more prominent flips I can think of is Tyus Battle going from Michigan to Syracuse. Um, but there's very little of that, especially at the high ends of uh, of the college basketball world. Usually, guys stick to their commitments for the most part. So, getting guys in early and allowing them to help recruit and build the class um, is definitely an advantage because uh, you so often see like Kentucky and Duke don't finish their classes until very late in the cycle. So you don't want them with extra 
um, extra spots available going after guys or, or, you know, other programs getting involved like that. So he's uh, should be pretty solid. It sounds like, you know, obviously there's the early signing period for basketball, which also alleviates a lot of the pressure. Um, but it's a really nice start to the class, and, and hopefully we see a, a nice bounce-back class that can get all of our very panicked uh, fans back off the ledge because after the slider decision, like, that was some crazy reaction for losing a kid to, like, a recruit arrival. Obviously, we were usually recruit better than Villanova, but Nova is a very good program that just won a national championship, so it wasn't like we lost him to, uh, you know... Well, if it uh, wasn't to Xavier, it would have been much worse. Xavier would have been worse, but even they're, like, pretty good. Like, that's not the craziest thing. It's not like we lost him to Drexel. Like, it's Villanova, and Duke also lost him to Villanova, so it, it happens. You're not going to win everyone. Um, but it, th- this is a very good... I wouldn't even call it a consolation prize. I think... I mean, they're very similarly ranked players. I think it's a stylistic choice. Um, but I, I, I think you'll sign for either one to get your class going. Oh, 100%. And I think, you know, it, it, it is funny. You, know, you and I talk about it, and others do too, how kind of bipolar this, uh, this fan base can be sometimes. Because you look at then how everyone was talking about um, Baisley just like the next day, and, and, and you would think that his name's already in the rafters at the Carrier Dome. I mean, it's... And, and you and I aren't, 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 you know, people apart from that, those reactions sometimes either. But uh, it is always funny to kind of, for a second at least, take yourself out of, out of Syracuse fans' shoes and take off the orange-colored glasses and, and, and watch our fan base and how they, how they can fluctuate so wildly uh, from, one, from one emotion to the next. Yeah, you miss a tournament one year and everyone's just uh, <laughs> going, going crazy. It's also... You know, hot here in the Northeast. I get it. it we're not used to this. Um, no, but this, this was a, a good way to to ring in the holiday weekend, and uh, pretty pretty relieved overall uh, because uh, we apparently, as a group, really needed really needed a win here. Um, even though I don't think things were quite as drastic as people were making them out to be. No, and obviously I haven't looked at uh, much in terms of our targets and who's left in the top hundred, but. I would assume that that Syracuse is working pretty hard on um, a few additions. I haven't looked at the the scholarship breakdown, but I would assume we have at least another three or four spots for next year since, well, yeah, I mean, depending on who leaves, obviously, but we should have at least three or four spots still left for next year. That sounds right. I'm not sure off the top of my head how many. I'll actually look that up while we're we're going here and see how many we have left. All good. Yeah, because, I mean, the fact that we... In this recent recruiting class, we got Dolzaz, that's going to be a little bit of a project. Uh, we got transfer Elijah Hughes, who's you know not a grad transfer, so he'll sit out this year, and then he'll still have several to play after that. Um, SU is, is, is maybe not with the biggest splashes, but, but, but slowly but surely stabilizing the future. Uh, sanctions, and I think, you know, uh, everyone panicking and all that, like, don't forget how long Beheim's been at this. No, he's not perfect, and and I've I've definitely taken him to task a little bit when when it's called for. But I, I think that despite you know the, the scenario, especially without Hopkins, your lead recruiter, um, where you could easily slip and fall a little bit in this kind of transition period, he's done a really nice job um, so far. Obviously, uh, not done yet, so I don't want to start you know crowning victories and, and all that, but. It is worth acknowledging uh, the quality of, of the job done over the last four to six months um, as we kind of pivot to our, our 
less certain than before future. I'm looking. It looks like we have two scholarships available for next year. Right now, obviously, things do tend to open up, and I think that's also counting a couple of uh, walk-ons that have scholarships right now. So there's a chance that we will end up having more um, more than that. I'm, I'm trying to suss through a, a chart that I'm looking at now. So we have at least two. Um, probably, I mean, this things always end up, you, you almost always have like one or two more because of people transferring out or leaving the NBA early, which uh, tends to happen nice. around here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, battle's probably not going to make it four years. Um, who knows, with, you know, Thompson, maybe we get another year after him after this year if he keeps on progressing. So things tend to work out where you have one or two more than you uh, expect, especially here at SU where we have someone leave early almost every year. Agreed, agreed. Um, moving on a little bit to our, uh, obviously we know basketball, but our forte of football. A um, couple articles I put together today on the site. Uh, one of them was uh, previewing Louisville. I hated that game so much last year, but in hindsight... And I think this is something that was completely lost in, you know, the hurdle photo and all this other crap. Syracuse hung around with Louisville through three quarters more than most teams did last year, um, at least until the final, you know, three games of that season. I mean, we hung around longer than Florida State did, and Florida State went and throttled us, you know, later in the season. That doesn't mean we're better than Florida State, obviously, by any means. But um, Syracuse did not have a problem with Louisville's defense last year. And a lot of teams did. Um, this year, most of that defense is back. Obviously, there's a couple um, exceptions there, and those are some big ones. Uh, Levante Fields, Josh Harvey Clemens, a few others. But um, I think that, once again, this game this year is going to be kind of a, a matchup of who has the most firepower uh, versus who can stop whom necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I think that's going to be the Syracuse thing uh, going forward for a bit until we, you know, unless we just land some big defensive recruits and, and really short that side of the ball. But um, overall, like you said, I think part of it's probably that Babers' system was very fresh. I think that was game number two last year. Yeah, um, yeah I watched it from a beer garden in Jersey City, so it, it was nice out at least. Um, but I knew it was early in the year. Uh, so I think that probably helped catch them off guard a little bit because it wasn't you know super apparent as to what the team was going to look like. But like you said, like that the 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 final score is pretty up. It's mostly because of the first and fourth quarters. Like Louisville jumped all over Syracuse and then ended really hot. But in the middle of that game, uh, SU played them pretty evenly. Um, within fourteen in the third quarter. Yeah, it was it was not out of reach. Obviously, Louisville had just more stamina and they have you know they were a much more talented team than us last year but um especially early in the year when they were just bludgeoning people uh you you noted the florida state game which was uh, a total statement game until it wasn't because louisville ended up like losing to kentucky getting uh who they play in the bowl last year lsu and they got run out of the stadium and the houston game and the houston game yeah it ended poorly last year for them Uh, but they did have a heisman winning quarterback who put up crazy numbers and and he treated Syracuse's defense like he treated, I'd say, most defenses last year. So um, I hope things narrow a little bit uh, this season. Obviously, Jackson is still there uh, and still very good, and I expect him to put up crazy numbers. Um, but, you know, if Dungy's still healthy, uh, when do we play them this year? I'm not even sure where they fall on the schedule. Uh, second to last game. Okay, so it's, like, complete opposite. Um, I mean, if they, have a, if they have a late season meltdown like last year, then, then maybe they're, they'll be right for the picking. I don't know that we should count on that. 
based on one year of evidence, but well, and um, our own injury history, and our own injury history, where we're a total uh, mash unit by the end of the season most years. Um, but I mean, if if things are going well, that should be a much closer game. And in college football, like you you do see where you know uh, games that are a thirty point margin one year can flip very quickly. No, one hundred percent. And I think yeah, like I'm I'm not projecting a win here, but I, I would. I would think we, we see a more competitive start-to-finish team, and I think that, that the key to the Dino Babers era, as it probably takes a couple of years, especially on the defensive end, to fix things, is going to be seeing those incremental improvements. I, I think that, you know, for those who have short-term memory loss, like, that, that Virginia Tech win is going gonna, is gonna to vanish into the rear view very quickly if, if next year we go 4-8 and eight again and you don't see them closing the gap on some of these bigger teams. And I don't know if that's necessarily fair, but just pointing out, like, that's what a lot of people are, are going to want to see is, is that, that gap that we saw against much better teams like Louisville, like, I mean, the Clemson games, just a whole other animal, um, and then Florida State. Like, seeing those gaps close a little bit, I think, is going to be uh, the bar you're going to have to meet um, for, for a lot of fans who – who might be a bit skeptical, especially of this defense. And, like, you don't see it now, and it's a pretty positive offseason, and a lot of folks are, are happy about how recruiting's going and excited about DeVito and other guys coming on campus. But, like, I mean, you remember, too, like the amount of negativity about that defense um, on Twitter and the comments everywhere else, I, pretty loud. Um, and I, I think it's going to come back pretty quickly um, this coming season, if it if it looks similarly, I know you and I have said we don't think it will, but it it, it very well could. Yeah, I mean that's just the nature of things. Um, but of course, I mean this is going to be an offense first team for the foreseeable future, and I I, I think we said when Babers was hired, if if you're going to have a bad side of the ball, I honest as just as a pure entertaining uh, entertainment valuing football fan I would rather have a good offense and a bad defense than the other way around and that's that's exactly what we had last year and I think the margin will close a bit this year but that is probably what we're looking at this year Uh, maybe we have a decent defense Um, but it's never going to be look at Boston College look at UConn like look at Rutgers like unwatchable trash last year and and with like UConn uh, and we'll probably talk well I don't know how much we're going to have to talk about them after the break but (laughs) <laughs> um, UConn had a had a good defense and a bad offense until it didn't, and then it just had a bad defense and a bad offense. And I think it's I this might be complete nonsense. I don't know how, have the numbers to back it up, but it feels to me as an observer of college football when you have an offensive system in place, it seems like those things tend to keep on going a little easier than uh, great defenses do. Like it seems like defense. Great defensive programs have more lapses. Like, look at Michigan State uh, recently. Look at Pat Narduzzi's pit teams. Obviously, he hasn't really established a great defense there, but he's a you know great defensive coach. Um, even uh, speaking of Louisville, uh, once upon a time, Charlie Strong, uh, who again will probably probably will definitely talk about him after the break, um, hasn't really established any of his teams as great defensive teams uh, at Texas or Louisville, even though that was his his forte heading into his head coaching career. So that said, Texas's defense is going to be pretty good this year. Yeah, he probably set them up pretty well, considering they have, like, all tons of talent uh, on that side of the ball. But um, I, I just feel like once you have an established offensive system, um, and we even saw this last year with Dun- when Dungey went out. Like, we have a former walk-on quarterback who 
is not at all built for the system we have. And Zach Mahoney went and dropped 440 yards at, you know, a Wobodon Pittsburgh defense, but it still happened. Like, that's still an FBS program with, you know, as good or better talent than Syracuse has, and he lift them up. So um, I'd much rather have a an offense that I know year in and year out will be at least good to very good and maybe occasionally great, and then hope the defense can uh, have, like, sparks versus relying on a defense to, you know, shut out teams when there's so much innovation going on all the time in college football, and you have a couple big injuries or a couple players don't progress the way you do, and, and you're giving up 30 points a game. Uh, we saw that with Schaefer. I mean, Schaefer had a couple great defenses, and then they fell off a cliff, and the offense was just so bad that it, did, it didn't recover. No, I mean, and that's also what happens when, when you... And, you know, way back a few years ago, like, you know, Brian Tamosh talked about, like, how how hiring your friends doesn't really work as a strategy. And I know that was kind of the mantra for all of us as, as Schaefer was nearing the end was, you know, hiring your friends and guys who might not necessarily have been qualified for the jobs they were, were walking into, you know, was problematic. Um, you know, George McDonald had never called plays uh, when he was, I mean, he was brought into Syracuse, we hired him away from Arkansas because there he was going to be wide receivers coach with us, he was going to call plays. He, he was happy to take the uh, the kind of, you know, promotion, even if not a, much of a raise, but he was ill-prepared for it. And that's not necessarily his fault. Um, but, you know, it, it takes a certain amount of, it takes a certain amount of wherewithal, a certain amount of just self-awareness to understand when it's time to move on. I think that, at Syracuse, I think with with McDonald, it might have taken a little bit longer than it should have. But you know, the, the fact that Schaefer was able to pull the trigger, kind of on a on a friend, um, at least at the time, uh, within a season and a half, I think you know, kudos to him for making the change. But unfortunately, you know, we were left with an offense that like wasn't really great. And I'm not going to rehash that, obviously, but uh, not the best offense by any means under uh, Tim Lester, either in the second half of um, his first season or his only full season as OC. Now he's uh, the head coach at Western Michigan somehow, so we will be facing him soon enough. I'm very <laughs> curious to be on the other well, end of the, that offense. We may be facing him. We don't know that. We have no <laughs> idea if he makes it to – is that 2019? Um, there's no – gar- is, it, is it that soon? I thought it was 2019, 2020, uh, or 2021. Um, either way, there is no guarantee that he makes it. I mean, if it's next year, if it's 2018, then he probably will. But I would not bet. If Lester can't get at least seven wins out of a team that was out recruiting the entire conference, then something's gone terribly wrong. Yeah, well, this year, I mean, if they really underachieve this year, then, like, I'm not saying that that West Michigan should fire him after a year. But, like, there's a. I would probably bet money on on this year being Tim Lester's winningest year at Western Michigan. Oh, yeah. No, I totally buy that. There isn't a doubt in my mind on that front. I mean, you see that all the time with teams. I mean, it's the Charlie Weiss effect. Like, you see coaches basically in year one or two when they're playing with other coaches' talent and don't actually have to stop Schaefer, also an example. <laughs> like, I feel like that happens so often for coaches that uh, wind up... I mean, there are other coaches that just fall on their faces, uh, faces immediately, and that's worse, but it's not... Uh, it's pretty common in college football, and Lester, like you said, is inheriting a group that was basically recruiting at like a mid-level AAC uh, level versus like a MAC level, and 
that should pay off for a couple years down the road, but obviously coaching ends up catching up to you if it's not good. So we'll, we will find out uh, firsthand, maybe. Or Western Michigan will have someone else. Uh, I don't know if that's better or worse. There's no way to tell. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's get to some halftime here, Dan. What have, uh, what have you been beveraging? Uh, I don't think I had anything too crazy. I had some leftover... Yeah, I haven't had anything new this week, unfortunately. I had, I had like, leftover uh, sculpins in the fridge down the shore and just some other, like, fairly common things that weren't that exciting. So hopefully this week back in New York City I will have uh, a more interesting array. Uh, it was a fairly boring week in terms of beer uh, just because my family drinks boring stuff. All right, um, on my end, so you had from, uh, I believe they're in Minnesota, some Fulton Beer War and Peace. It's an Imperial Coffee Stout. Uh, it was up in Santa Rosa, so as I mentioned, I got to hit up uh, Russian River, which uh, I was definitely glad I did. They had a beatification up there. It was in a fantastic sour ale, uh, one of the best beers that they have. They release it once a year. Um, luckily, it's still on draft uh, when I was up there. Uh, they had Hopfather on, another IPA from them that I'd been uh, looking for for quite some time. Um, also got to check out, they had a, a kind of session IPA called uh, Ron Mexico, and I very much appreciated the reference. Um, I'm surprised that, uh, that other breweries haven't already grabbed that one as a beer name. And then had to grab a bottle of Blind Pig to take back to the uh, Airbnb we were staying at. Um, what else did I try? Oh, I also went up to, um, I was at a wedding on Sunday, and afterward we hopped over to, um, there was a brewery, Cooperage Brewing, um, a little bit north of Russian River, so had um, their Smart Went Crazy IPA, and then uh, Dank Anchors, the uh, double IPA they had on draft. Um, when I got back to Southern California, Pizza Port had a, a tap takeover over at a select beer store down at Redondo Beach. Had their uh, Norse Woman IPA, checked out their uh, barrel-aged bacon and eggs. Uh, does not taste like bacon and eggs, just a uh, barrel-aged Imperial Coffee Stout. Uh, and then had their uh, Same Hops, different IPA. It was also very good. Um, Fourth of July, had a uh, Trillium uh, Metal Double IPA. And then from Celador Ales, um, up in uh, Hollywood Park, had uh, Confuzzled. It was very good sour ale with uh, pineapple, mango, and uh, guava. Very, very refreshing Fourth of July for me. Good stuff. Indeed, indeed. Um, all right, now to the second half of this podcast: the American Athletic Conference, aka the AAC. Um, feels like weird to call it that, though, when we're speaking out loud. It's fine to write it. I think, I mean, they, they've been trying to brand it as the American, and that does sound better. Whatever. It just makes it seem way more important than it is, although I think we'll both concede that as much as we like to make fun of our what is kind of our former conference-ish, uh, it is a really fun league. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. It's, it's a super that. fun league. I'll, 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 I'm not even begrudgingly anymore. I'll just, I'll just give them that. Like, you guys are entertaining, you... But you're entertaining for, like, all, like, the wrong... Not the wrong reasons, but, like, not the right reasons. 
it's also like I think they've kind of hit a fever pitch in terms of like a lot of teams are really good at once, and I don't know that it's going to be sustainable, especially if there continues to be a divide between the Power Five and Group of Five. But right now, like super super fun league, and uh, with a lot of fun coaches and players, and uh, we're going to see a lot of these coaches probably not staying around in the AAC for too long because they all seem to be getting bit jobs. Well, it's just like the um, Big East, is that you just end up being the breeding ground for, you know, better jobs. And, like, eventually that eventually that appeal wears off for your fan base, for your boosters. But, I mean, right now, the one thing that they have that the Big East didn't, the Big East had a lot of programs that were historically relevant, even if they weren't at the time. They had schools that like had had a history of success to point to at some point even if it wasn't like while they were in the big east uh rutgers aside and temple aside obviously um but but there's schools that, that at one point like we're playing resor- with resources and we're playing re- with resources at the time especially because of the stature of the basketball league where the american athletic conference might be able to sustain this a little bit longer is the fact that you know most of these schools were, were, were stuck in some sort of cusa purgatory or or in some of their cases, you know, Big East cast-offs. There's not a lot of them that, that are sitting around with, with these, you know, super high-level expectations and everything else. They, they're, they're schools that, that are, I think, supremely realistic of their place in the world, especially now that, like, realignment seems to have passed us by, at least for the next few years. Yeah, I mean, I think Houston is definitely uh, fairly ambitious and probably, you know, on paper would have made a lot of sense with Big 12 and and Memphis is always looking to jump, and, and there are a couple others, um, obviously the two Florida schools and UConn. I mean, almost all these teams wanted to be in the Big 12, uh, and yeah. most of them would take an invite anywhere else. But I think for now, like, they do kind of know who they are, um, and they are working to uh, just continue to build on, on what they've done recently, especially schools like Memphis and Temple, who had basically no history to go on. Temple has, like, a, a unfortunate history of getting probably are one of the only schools to get straight up kicked out of a power league. Um, maybe the only one I don't like, I don't know the total Devin, history behind definitely like, be, well, at least like recent history. Yeah. I mean like Georgia tech and Tulane, I mean, Georgia Tech's obviously still in one Tulane left the sec. I don't think that was like a, a got kicked out situation. Yeah, I think they, that they was of their own volition. Um, Southern university, whomever else, the university of Chicago, like way going way back. Um, I think Temple's probably the only one who got, like, legit kicked out, uh, which is bad. Um, and Temple's kind of found their own identity. Memphis uh, was really horrible for a while, and they're in, like, a weird spot where you, you kind of get why they would be good because they're in SEC temp- uh, territory, and they have no real academic uh, hurdles to speak of, like uh, T- Tulane does a little bit, um, and they're in a big city. But, like, Tennessee is probably the weakest recruiting state down there uh in that area maybe you know unless you can like arkansas and you're stretching over that far um and obviously university of tennessee uh is is the the main program there and, and even like i think this year clemson has like the top two or three guys from tennessee for whatever reason they've just been poaching all of the talent in the backyard so it's just not a hugely densely populated recruiting state and obviously university of tennessee is the dominant program in the state so the, there just wasn't like a lot for that program to have um and that explains why they were so bad for a while. Then Justin Fuente gets there and just and launches them into a new stratosphere in like two years, and they seem to be uh, continuing that on that trajectory. So there's a lot of those kind of stories. Obviously, Houston just has a lot of potential overall, and it's been good a number of times. And 
other programs, Cincinnati, same same deal. Um, but it's, it's definitely an interesting mix, uh, and I think the current layout is really cool because you have like a Houston and a Memphis who are coming from very different area, different uh, levels, um, battling it out for the top of their division, and and USF and Temple kind of same deal. Um, one that makes a lot of sense to why it's good, one that really doesn't, but has just made a lot of really good hires. So uh, I'm, I'm just really intrigued by this group of schools, and uh, I hope that UConn fails forever. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, UConn can burn. I don't really care. Um, <laughs> if there's one school that has the losing record, is right. Is you had, in the regular season last year, you had five of these schools had losing records. Only one of them I want to stay there, and that's UConn. Cincinnati, I really want you to get better. I don't know why you got so bad. It's probably because you decided to not really get innovative with your hiring and stick with something a little safe, which I don't think you're going to win recruiting battles in the state of Ohio against Ohio State. So, again, might have served you better to try something else. Um, East Carolina, I think, got a little too heady for its uh, its own good and yeah I think SMU's on the way up and I think Tulane could be on the way up I think Willie Fritz is a great hire and I think that Tulane's suddenly mastered branding so props to them I, I think that again they're 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 also on the way up I think the only schools you can really isolate is maybe not um are, are the are those bottom three eastern schools which which is weird in a lot of ways I mean especially for Cincinnati and East Carolina because they're two schools that have existed outside like the main power structure for a long time, but ones who, especially ECU, I mean, ECU's been doing this for decades. I mean, Cincinnati, for the last 20 years at least, has uh, has found itself a niche in terms of being like the best, you know, non-Big Ten, like Midwest school. Dan, you're muted. Whoops. Um... <laughs> I mean, even even those bottom east schools, like you brought up, Cincinnati, they're not in a uh, st- they're in a very talent rich state, but there's only one power there. So if you're Cincy, and they've done this a little bit since Luke Fickle got there, and I think that was an interesting hire in that it both feels kind of safe, but he's so many he's been at Ohio State for so long that he has all the roots that you could possibly ask for as a recruiter in that area. Um, that. It just makes a lot of sense. Like the the, the fit was so natural that you, you can almost apolog- uh, get over it being like maybe kind of milk toast. Um, and he's recruiting pretty well there. And and there just isn't that much like Cincinnati can do battle with a West Virginia or a Kentucky. Like they can beat those schools for kids occasionally. So you can be competitive there. Um, East Carolina obviously has a you know they're in a very another hotbed. Um, they're far enough away. They have a, a really strong group of five fan base. Like I, I'm not too worried about them being down for too long as long as they their hire works out. Um, even UConn. I mean, Randy Edsel's about as boring a hire as you could make, but he did win there once. Obviously, that doesn't necessarily mean it'll happen again. We've seen that go poorly for schools before. But even he, he was fairly innovative with what we brought on. Um, Auburn fans will give you kind of mixed reviews on Rhett Lashley, but at least he's trying. Like <laughs> that, That's an interesting hire. I don't know that it'll work, but it's way out of the box, and I was very shocked when it happened, and there's a chance it's a disaster, but at least it's forward-thinking, uh, and I don't know that you could really blame him for doing it, if, even if it doesn't work out. No, 100%. Um, no, it's, you know, knowing what you don't know. And, right. And that's, that's one thing I'll definitely give Edsel here, that, that he, he, he knew what he didn't know, and he wanted to fix it, 
I, I think that you know Syracuse like didn't create this novel concept by hiring Babers, but I think they reset the thinking in the Northeast, um, and, and that's something that you're probably going to see more of, even if it's not to full spread offense. You, you are going to start seeing, um, I think, those teams, and we've talked about this before, those teams have all kind of existed with a very similar identity and one reflective of like some blue collar idea of the region. And that's just, it's never really worked, especially in the modern era, like the very modern eras in like 1970 to now. Um, and it, it certainly wouldn't work, you know, in, in this decade of, of marketing a very boring and bland brand of football to kids. Yeah, I, I do think UConn is, I mean, I would, A, I would be both, uh, yeah. I would be very surprised if they weren't in the bottom three of this league this year just based on a talent uh, deficit they're at. And also, going forward, I think it's going to be tricky as long as this league looks the way it does. Because if you're just looking at the list of stools, like, they just have a much harder road to getting talent. Um, you're you're looking at... by everybody. Yeah, it, there, there's not a lot of... I mean, and then we're in the AAC now, not the Big East, where they were being recruited by most teams um, then. But you're looking... You have Houston, SMU... Uh, both in Texas, obviously, access to a ton of players. Tulane um, is in Louisiana. Uh, obviously, it's not going to beat LSU for kids, but there are a lot of kids in Louisiana, uh, especially in New Orleans proper. Um, Tulsa is in, you know, it's not in Texas, but it's in shouting distance, and they run the Bryle system where it's a bit plug-and-play if you identify the right talent, and Montgomery's been doing this for long enough where he kind of does. Navy, it's his own monster in terms of recruiting. You, you know, they do things completely differently, and they aren't really impacted really by, by region all that much, I don't think. Like, if you're, if you're yeah, going after a kid that wants to go to Navy, it's just, like, a different... Like, the recruiting is just a different thing for them. Okay. Um, Memphis, uh, obviously, Tennessee is not a great recruiting state, which uh, I was talking about before, but they can at least get their hands in some of the other SEC states, and there aren't, like... When you're, when you're a kid that's not quite at SEC level or ACC level, or, or Big 12, I guess, is kind of right there... Um, Memphis is one of the best options now, uh, which it wasn't for a while, but one of the best options like in that next tier. Um, and then even in the East, like USF, UCF, uh, Cincinnati, all are from big recruiting states. East Carolina is from a very solid one. And Temple has, like, I don't know how much you've been paying attention to what Temple's doing on the recruiting front. Um, they have gotten so many recruits in the last, I'd say, three to, uh, two to three weeks. I'm pretty sure they have, I'm looking it up now, I think at one point they were at a dozen recruits over like an eight-day period, and most of them are from Philadelphia um, or the Philadelphia area. They are, they are all right. So they currently have 15 recruits in their uh, 2018 class. Um, I'm looking at the dates. They're pretty much all from like the third week in June on. Um, a lot of Jersey, a lot of uh, Philadelphia area, a couple uh, Maryland. Um, they've beaten Rutgers for a couple kids head to head. Like they're doing battle there. And I think they're just kind of doing the, almost not totally uh, different from what Marone was doing with New York City, like going after were, kids. What that, Rutgers did when we were down, like Temple Temple's following the Rutgers playbook. Temple's saying yeah. Rutgers looks like shit right now, so let's go after the kids they're going after, and let's market them a chance to play for a conference title, a chance to potentially play in a G five game that Rutgers, I mean not G five access bowl game that Rutgers literally is never going to have. Like th- this is th- this is textbook you know, Rutgers, and, and like, that, that's, that's not an insult either, that, like, Rutgers was smart to pounce on Syracuse's downturn, and Temple's right now is very smart to pounce on Rutgers' downturn, and I hope that Syracuse continues to kind of 
chip away at it a little bit too. Although I think right now what Penn State and Ohio State and Michigan are able to do in New Jersey prevents a little bit of it. But nonetheless, I, I think what you're describing here in a lot of these places, and it's something that UConn can't do, is you're looking at a lot of urban campuses that are building literal walls around the recruits in their area. They understand the guys they can't get. They don't even bother with them. And they move on to the, the high three-star and low three-star guys who, you know, they know that they can they can not just beat out the other group of five schools for it, but they can beat out, you know, your Vanderbilt's for them and, and sometimes your Syracuse's for them. They just understand the, the, the weight they're fighting at and they're, they're fully capable of keeping, you know, they're, they're fully capable of keeping those kids around. They're very capable of selling not just the school, but the, but the city and engendering this sort of, you know, family atmosphere around, like, geography. And it's, it's tribalism in its most basic sense, but it's something that, like, I think you're seeing widespread in college football. But, again, especially in this conference where there's so many big cities that are in big recruiting areas, and that's, again, where, where you were getting at, where UConn falls flat is that you can't, like, build a wall around Hartford because you're just going to end up with a bunch of two-star kids and, and a couple three-stars that Syracuse doesn't walk right in and, like, take from you. Yeah, so, like, Temple here... A lot of these Philadelphia kids or the Philadelphia area kids aren't even rated yet, but you're you're working to, and the theory is you engender good faith with those programs in that area so you can compete better uh, for the better kids down the road. Um, that's something that uh, uh, Jeff Collins is obviously t- taking running from Matt Rule, who did this very well, where they were, at the end of Rule's tenure, they were competing for some kids with some solid offers um, and also developing guys like Hassan Riddick, who ended up being a first-round pick. Um, but if you can lock up that city and make it a Temple City, which it's never been, and obviously you still have Penn State to deal with, and, and you're just not going to win most or any four-star kids, but if you can make this, like, Temple is where I'm going to go if I am a sub-Power 5 player, uh, you're going to at least have a fighting chance of... Uh, and it's, it's just going to be easier for you to recruit down the line because you already have those relationships um, and I, I, I like the Jeff Collins hire when it happened. He's a, a recruiting is like his thing. He's a very fiery uh, recruiter. He's made headlines for things he was doing at Mississippi State in Florida. He also, um, like a couple of the guys before him at Temple, defensive-minded, but uh, I was reading Bill C's Temple preview, and it's interesting. He noted that Collins um, is actually ran a very similar defense to what Rule was running uh, at Temple when he was at Florida last year, so... I think we've seen uh, defensive transitions probably get a little less press than offensive transitions, um, but they're still pretty important. And if there isn't a huge one for Collins at Temple, uh, they had a really good defense last year, probably the best one in the conference. So I wouldn't be shocked if they were pretty competitive right off the bat this year, even though they lose, obviously, their head coach, but uh, um, some talent on that side of the ball. But it, it seems like Temple has kind of a model that might work, maybe not long-term, like I think, this can blow up because they aren't in a classic football power hotbed, but I would feel better about Temple building something at least somewhat um, sustainable in Philadelphia versus UConn, who is always going to have an uphill battle uh, recruiting from the Hartford area. There's this, there's this isn't, isn't talent up there, and that's not a knock on on UConn as a rival of ours. It's just the, the reality. And, and Syracuse is in, you know, if they were stuck in the AAC, they'd be closer to the UConn situation than the Philly, aside from, you know, a little more history and whatnot. So, again, we're very lucky to be in the ACC, and anyone who complains about this, well, however many years in we are now, is crazy, although I don't see a lot of that anymore. 
I saw some the other day. <laughs> of course. I mean, there's always going to be some. Yeah. It's going to be 2075, and it, we'll see some. <laughs> but I, I feel like it's waning uh, now that we've kind of, you know, we feel like a pretty uh, long-term member of the conference by this point. Right. We've cashed some checks. We've, we've, we've taken our shoes off. We've sat down on the couch. We've raided the fridge. I think we've done, we've done everything we need to do to, to be at home. We just haven't beaten a lot of the teams yet, but we'll get there. A lot of that's the division. The division layout doesn't allow, to, allow us to beat a lot of the teams. So, and then Clemson and Florida State are really good. So what are we supposed to do? Exactly. Um, I guess to wrap us up here in the last few minutes, um, Dan, some divisional picks, and then we can talk about whether or not any of these teams are going to the, uh, the New Year's Six. Um, in the East, I've got South Florida. I think South Florida can potentially go undefeated this year. Um, I think Willie Taggart did a lot of really great work, especially in the, in the last two years um, at, at USF. And I think that, you know, them hiring Charlie Strong was just such a natural fit. And I think that, you know, he he's going to get the most out of this group very quickly. And I think you're going to see them at 12-1, and 13-0, potentially going into um, a New Year's Six game. And I, they don't have the schedule to, uh, to be considered uh, for a, a top-four spot. But at the same time, like this is definitely one of the probably 20 or so best teams in the country. Um, and, and that, you know, that should make them appointment viewing every week. Yeah, last week you said you thought we might have different picks. Um, I also have USF winning <laughs> the East. Um, I love the roster they have. Quentin Flowers is a monster, as we found out last year. Um, I don't think they're going to have uh, as much of an issue, the running back last year, who's Marlon Mack, um, replacing him. Uh, I believe their backup is pretty good, too. I wrote his name down, and now I can't find it. Um, Rhett something? That's it is an interest. Uh, I'm looking. Um, this is great radio. The best. Something. <laughs> we'll get back to him. Uh, you keep talking. But I'll find it. The, thank you. I'm, I'm just treading water. Um, I am interested. Like the one, the one hiccup that that there may be is that the Willie Taggart offense, which was very, uh, I mean, it shifted a lot. Like he kind of molded it into what it needed to be. Versus, you know, the first couple of years he was there and they weren't playing well. Um, didn't really have the identity. Uh, and to his John. credit, thank you, thank you. He is quite good. Um, I think he actually had better like rate numbers than Mac did, and Mac was awesome. Um, I, I wrote that down and everything, and then I just like lost it. Um, but they they were super explosive last year. They they kind of found their their footing um, against us, as we've noted multiple times. We kind of started the the, the machinations of Willie Thackert eventually getting that Oregon job. Um, their new offensive uh, offensive coordinator is Sterling Gilbert, who comes from the um, Bryles via Montgomery at Tulsa Tree, who was uh, at Texas with Strong last year. Um, obviously, that system isn't the same as what Taggart was doing. Uh, so I do wonder if there's going to be a little bit of, of square peg, round hole-ish uh, going on there. Um, I mean, hopefully I just think it isn't. you've got Flowers and you've got that Southern Florida speed. Like, you've got enough guys from that part of the country. Yeah, I would hope. run whatever you need to run. And, and if this was Art Bryles, and again, the, the normal Art, we're bringing up Art Bryles, but we were not talking about any of the uh, sexual assault stuff, like purely football, our Bryles discussion right now. 
if this is our Bryles, I would trust him to put together the perfect offense because that's what he did with whatever he had. Um, I don't know that his uh, his acolytes quite have the same ability. We'll find out uh, on our end. Hopefully we find out in the positive, but still no, but just enough far enough removed. I don't know if he's just stuck with the the bear raid as, you know, what we know it uh, overall versus, like, Bryles' ability to install an entire new offense in three weeks based on injuries. Um, obviously, that's not quite the same situation. We have a whole, I mean, Gilbert's been there since, like, January 5th, I think, uh, based on what I just Googled. Um, so he's been there for a while. So if there, if there isn't a lot of uh, growing pains on the offensive side, and the defense should get better. Like, I, I brought up Strong before. I still trust him like as a pretty good defensive coach, even if the results haven't always been there um, as a head coach. But I can't imagine the USF defense is not that much worse because it was very uh, leaky last year. They just stored a lot, so it didn't really matter. Um, but I think with some progression on the defensive side and – if the offense clicks and doesn't take a long time to kind of figure itself out, like this team is very talented and uh, I like them to win the East. And, and like you said, I don't know about run the table, but it's certainly, you can't rule it out. I agree. Um, and then I guess wrapping us up quick, who would South Florida beat coming out of the West? I think that Houston has the most talent, but I think Navy probably has the best chance. Um, I know a lot of people are on the Memphis train. I'll entertain it. I just think that it, this division probably still runs through Navy um, as Houston kind of finds its footing for a year post uh, Tom Herman. Yeah, I mean, that, that division's kind of loaded. Um, all three of those to definitely do it. I'm going to go with Memphis, uh, if only because uh, I usually, with, with a tie, I take the quarterback, and Riley Ferguson, I think, is one of the best in the league. Um, and they've just been so good for three years now, I, I trust them the most. Houston obviously has touchy turnover, with, but they have a lot of talent, and they have Ed Oliver, which could end up making this seem stupid because Ed Oliver is like one of the ten best players in the country. I would agree with that sentiment completely. I hope he wins the Heisman. <laughs> That'd be amazing. <laughs> a group of five defensive tackle winning the Heisman. I'm here. I'm here for it. Yep. Sign me up. Uh, all right, Dan. Appreciate you uh, hanging out tonight. Much obliged as always. Of course. Happy to happy to be back as always. Indeed, indeed. So that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk, on whatever other service you may listen to. And go Dion Waiters. Go Dion. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. At Jared, we know devotion isn't a a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.